There are some things that we should not underestimate. I want to show you a striking picture. The man in this picture, I hope you can see it well, is a man named Theonis Wessel. He lives in South Africa. And his wife stepped out of the back of the house and snapped a photograph of him mowing the grass with a menacing large tornado right over his shoulder. When he was asked later how he could mow the grass with a tornado right over the fence, he simply said, I was keeping an eye on it. I was watching it. Maybe this gentleman underestimated the power and potential for destruction that a tornado has. This morning our text is going to point us to some truths concerning vigilance against false doctrine. And Paul uses some strong language in this text because he doesn't want us to underestimate the power and potential for destruction that comes with false teaching. So keeping that in mind, I want you to look with me in Galatians chapter 1. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful New Testament letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote to churches that were scattered throughout the Roman province of Galatia in the first century. We've come to Galatians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 8. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. How's everybody feeling this morning? Okay, time change Sunday. Everybody doing okay? All right. Hey, when you get home, you can take a nap. And some of you look like you need it. All right, that's all I'm saying. You look like you need a nap. That's all I'm saying. All right. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 8, the Bible says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And we are grateful, Lord, excited about another opportunity to gather together as a faith family to fix our minds and our hearts upon you. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, you would move in our midst by the power of your spirit, that our eyes might be opened, that we would understand the truths of Scripture and have the inclination to respond to the truths of Scripture. Lord, I pray that we will leave today different than when we walked in. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that we have gathered to celebrate today. 
And that, Lord, I pray that in these moments you would help us to exalt the strong name of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Unlike some of his other letters, Paul gets right to business. He shares some introductory things in verses 1 through 5, but he gets right to it in verse 6 with a very strong tone using very direct language. Why? Well, he's, he's upset. He's angry. He has a harsh tone at the beginning. It softens a little in chapter 4, but there's a harsh tone here because he is so upset that these churches were being infiltrated by false teachers and false teaching, and people were being led away from the truth. He was passionate about the gospel, and he was angry that people were being led away from the true gospel. So he uses very direct language, very strong language here in this first section. John Piper sums it up well when he writes, You can't read the first ten verses without feeling that something utterly important is at stake. You can't read Galatians and think, well, this is an interesting piece of religious reflection, any more than you can examine a live coal with your bare hands. Paul is fervent in this first section because so much is at stake. And last week we saw how Paul shared his astonishment that these false teachers had infiltrated the churches and were leading folks away. We know by looking at the overall uh, gist of the letter that after Paul went through these cities in Galatia, like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Antioch Pisidia, and started churches, he went back through them and encouraged them, helped them to appoint leaders, discipled them, taught them, instructed them. He went back to his home church of Antioch, Syria. And then he got word that these false teachers called Judaizers had come to the churches he had started. And these Judaizers came to these churches and basically said, Oh, we've heard that you've placed your faith in Jesus. That's great. Good job. But if you really want to be right with God, not only do you need Jesus, but you also need to make sure you're circumcised and keep the Sabbath and the festival days of Judaism. And if you do all the stuff right, then God will accept you. So the message of these false teachers was salvation comes from Jesus plus your efforts, your religious deeds, which is false doctrine. The, the gospel says we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We're not saved by achieving salvation. We are saved by believing in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Putting our trust in him alone to save us. Knowing he died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead. And because of that, we can be forgiven and we can go to heaven when we die. Why? Not because we're good, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So Paul is, is upset that these Judaizers had entered the church and were leading people astray. And he's astonished, he says in verse 6. But then he turns his attention in verse 8 to these false teachers. And he uses some very, very powerful language about them. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you three thoughts about false teachers and false teaching. Three thoughts about false teachers and false teaching that come right from our text. Here's thought number one. We should test the message of everyone. 
we should test the message of everyone. If there is a such thing as false teaching, and there is, if there are false teachers, and there are, and if false teaching has potential and power to destroy, and it does, then we should test the message of everyone. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, you've turned to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before, I, I say now again, if anyone, anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. I appreciate in this passage Paul's sense of self-accountability. Notice he says, if I preach to you a different message than the biblical gospel, then I should be accursed. And then he says, if an angel preaches to you a different message, why would he say an angel? Well, did you know the Bible says that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light? So even if you are wowed by this mystical religious experience... But the message you get from the messenger you think to be an angel is a false message. You should steer clear. And then to sum it up to make sure everyone's included, he says, if anyone preaches a contrary gospel, anyone. So here's what Paul is saying. We should test the message of everyone. You see, if the message is wrong, it, it does not matter who the messenger is. And the content of the message is more important than the charisma or credentials of the messenger. Now this is important because let me tell you what I see happening in American Christianity. We see people being led astray, and usually those people who are led astray uh, are, have bought into a cult of personality. They buy into someone's message because of their charisma, or maybe their credentials, or their nice smile, and they buy into the messenger, even though the message is wrong, and they are led astray. And what Paul's saying here is this, the content of the message is more important than the, than the, the messenger bringing it. And if the messenger brings a contrary gospel, the messenger is a false teacher. A false teacher. And so that means that you and I, should be vigilant in examining messages. That's the point of this text. Paul says, if I or an angel or if anyone brings a, a contrary gospel, let him be accursed. You and I should be vigilant in examining messages. We should test every message. So wait, how do you test religious messages? You simply take it and lay it beside the Bible. And if it contradicts the word of God, it is a false message, period. We're to test everything by the Word of God. Now that implies that you know the Bible, right? And as you know the Bible and you hear a contrary message, you say, that's not right. That's not accurate. That's not true. We should be vigilant in examining messages. I heard this past week about a pet store in California that lost a five-foot, 35-pound monitor lizard. It just went missing, and they saw on security footage, it was just kind of sauntering towards the back of the store. And now no one knows where it is. They've warned the entire community there may be a 5-foot, 35-pound monitor lizard somewhere. 
be on guard. Now, listen, if I told you this morning, hey, we're glad you're here, welcome to the point, we just want you to know, don't, don't, don't get nervous, we want you to know that, that a, a five-foot monitor lizard has escaped in the building, he could be anywhere, you probably would be a little bit more cautious about walking around the building. Before you sat down, you would, you would look under the seat, wouldn't you? When you walked into the bathroom, you would be, is that lizard in here? I mean, you would be vigilant, you would be cautious, because a five-foot lizard is just flat-out scary. Can I get an amen? Why, by the way, why would they want that as a pet? That's another sermon, we'll get to that later, but it's scary, right? We'd be, we'd be on guard. Listen to me, false teaching is scary. It destroys lives. It leads people astray. It leads people away from truth. We should be on guard. We should be vigilant. Starting with this pulpit. Paul includes himself. Even if I present a gospel contrary. Listen to me. You should test everything that comes from me. And from every Bible teacher or religious teacher. And test it by the word. We should test the message of everyone. But secondly, another thought about false teachers and teaching. We need to understand it is extremely serious to preach a distorted gospel. It's a big deal, a serious deal to preach a distorted gospel. Look what Paul says there in verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone, say anyone, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul here is reminding us that false teaching is dangerous to the hearers because it leads them astray. But also, false teaching is dangerous for the false teacher. It is serious business to lead people away from the truth. That's why Paul says, let them be accursed. He says it twice. That word accursed is the translation of the Greek word anathema. Anathema means to be cursed or to cut off. It means to be delivered over to destruction by God. You know what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, if there's someone preaching to you a contrary gospel than the true one, let him go to hell. That's what he's saying. That's what that word anathema means. That's serious business, isn't it? That's what, that's what anathema means. Cut off, cursed. As I was studying this past week, I kept thinking of Hebrews 10.31 where the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And Paul is suggesting that these false teachers be delivered into God's hands for destruction because their sin is so grievous. They are leading people astray from the truth. Now, here's what's interesting. In verse 8, he uses a subjunctive clause which means it's sort of like a, a hypothetical statement. Look in verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be a curse. So he's hypothetically saying, if anyone 
preaches a, a different message, let him be a curse, hypothetically. But then in verse 9, he deals with this, their situation because he uses the indicative. He says there, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The indicative indicates he's dealing with their specific situation. So he's dealing with the false teachers that infiltrated their church. Now here's what's interesting. As this letter was being read to the churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and Antioch Pisidia, it's possible that some of these false teachers were in the audience listening. Can you imagine? A letter from the Apostle Paul. He says, these Judaizers that are adding to the gospel, let them be under the curse of God. <laughs> That'd get your attention, wouldn't it? Paul is simply saying it is extremely serious business to preach a distorted gospel. Heard a story about a Sunday school teacher in a children's class. The teacher asked this question, what is false doctrine? A little boy answered, and I think it's a good answer. It's when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to the people who are sick. It's a good definition, isn't it? That's what false doctrine is. It's like a doctor giving the wrong stuff to sick folks. What they're saying will not help them, it will harm them. But also, if a doctor keeps giving the wrong stuff to sick folks over time, eventually that doctor will be held account for malpractice, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Not only is the teaching dangerous because it leads folks astray, it's dangerous for the false teacher. They are committing spiritual malpractice. Instead of giving the, uh, people something that will help them, they are harming them and leading them astray. And so, he's saying it is extremely serious to preach a distorted gospel. Which leads to the third thought. Fidelity to the gospel pleases God. And that's why Paul is so standing so strongly against these false teachers in their message. Look what he says in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul reminds us here that we are all slaves of Christ. That's what that word servant means. Doulos. Bond, servant, slave, it means that, that you have no rights of your own. When you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, you surrender your life to Him. You are surrendered. He is your master. What He says goes. You have no rights of your own. Jesus is Lord. That's what that word means. He says, we're all slaves of Jesus. And he said, that's why I am so passionate about the truth. Because I'm a slave of Jesus. And we're reminded by that, that if we are slaves of Jesus, we have no right to change the message of our master. Right? If we're bond servants and he's the master and he's given us the message, who are we to change it? It's the message of our Lord, right? We have no right to change it. And Paul is saying, the reason I stand for the truth is because I want to Please, God. It's His message, not mine. 
Now I know by standing for the true gospel, the gospel revealed in the pages of Scripture, I am pleasing God with my life. But here's what you need to understand. There is a price to pay for fidelity to the gospel. As our society rapidly changes, and it is, if, if, you don't, if you're not aware, things are changing quickly all around us. And there's going to be, there's going to be an, an increasing price to pay for just holding on to the truth, clinging to the truth in our culture. There's a price to pay for fidelity to the gospel. But look what Paul says, I'm not seeking the approval of men. I want to please God, not man. But Paul helps us understand, if I, would, if I just gave in a little bit, backed away a little bit, then I wouldn't have to go through the hardships I'm going through. What hardships? Well, look with me in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. Galatians 5, verse 11. Paul says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? He's saying, if, if I were preaching a false gospel, then I wouldn't be going through this hardship. Because everyone would applaud my message instead of saying, Paul's got it wrong. He's saying, so I could, I, could, I could preach that you need to be circumcised to be saved, and the Judaizers would love me and think I'm great. But because I refuse to back away from the truth, I'm persecuted. How persecuted was he? We'll look in chapter 6, verse 17, where Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Stoned, beaten with rods, hungry, thirsty, arrested, in prison. Why? Because he stood for the truth. He understood there's a price to pay for fidelity to the gospel. That was true of Paul, and it's going to be true for us. You've heard me quote Ralph Waldo Emerson many times. For nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure. And as we hold on to the truth, our society's not going to like it. And there will be a price to pay. Maybe in your school, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your family, there'll be a price to pay for just believing what the Bible says and refusing to back away. I was at a conference this past week with my wife, and we heard a, a pastor speak of a, an Iranian pastor named Farshid. Farshid was in prison in Iran for years simply for being an evangelical Christian preacher. He was preaching the gospel. They threw him into prison for years. He went through many difficulties in that prison. But periodically, they would bring Farshid in, this pastor, and they would say, if, you, if you'll just deny Jesus... You can go home right now and see your wife and kids. Right now. That's all you got to do. He'd say, well, I can't do that. And they'd send him back to prison. He's been released, but now his wife and kids are in Canada. And he's having trouble try making it over here to go see his wife and kids. There's a price to pay for fidelity to the gospel. So we should not be surprised when we cling to the truth. But the world whips us with its displeasure. And that leads to this question. Well, how can we please God 
by maintaining faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can, we, how can we please him by clinging to the truth? What does that look like? How can we make sure we're going to be faithful to the gospel, not led astray by false teachers or false teaching? How can we make sure that we cling to the truth? Let me give you five quick thoughts and we'll be through. Number one, and this almost goes without saying, but I need to say it. Know the gospel. you got to know it. If you're going to stand for the truth, you got to know what the truth is. If you're going to test every message by the Word, you got to know what the Word says, right? You've got to know the gospel. You've heard me use this illustration many times that treasury agents are trained to spot counterfeit money by studying real currency. And they know the real currency so well, when they see a counterfeit, they know it instantly and can identify it. I don't know if this is still true. I haven't looked it up recently, but there was a time uh, not too long ago when the largest number of converts into Mormonism were Southern Baptists. Now, Mormonism is a cult. It's false teaching. When you boil it all down, it's a man-centered, works-based religion that preaches a different Jesus. what it is. And yet, Southern Baptists in large numbers were converting, even though it's a different gospel, a, a gospel contrary to the gospel revealed in the pages of Scripture. Why? I would submit it's because these Southern Baptists didn't know the gospel, didn't understand it. And when someone come and knock on their door, they would twist them into theological pretzels because they didn't know the truth and couldn't counter what these folks were saying with truth, simple Gospel, truth. So we need to know the gospel. That's why this study in Galatians is so important. For months, we're going to go through Galatians, and we're going to see Paul remind us over and over and over again, you're not saved by by working for your salvation or achieving some level of righteousness. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. We'll see that over and over and over again. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In any worldview, any religion, any denomination that says you've got to work for it, you've got to do something, you've got to achieve something, is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you've got to know it, right? You've got to know what the gospel is. Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. On the third day, He rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Because Jesus died for our sins, we can be forgiven. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can go to heaven when we die. Because Jesus paid it all, we can be reconciled into a relationship with the Holy God and know Him forever. That's the gospel. We're not saved by achieving. We're saved by believing in what Jesus Christ has done. Period. you got to know it. Got to know what the gospel is. But secondly, you need to articulate the gospel. I don't know about you, but if I hear something, I can learn it kind of. But if I hear something and then I share it with somebody else, I learn it better. How about you? There's something about like your ears, hearing your mouth say those things that helps you understand it better. I don't know how that works. But, but if, if your only interaction with the gospel is here and Pastor Wade preach every week, 
mean, that's good. It's truth from God's Word. But you also need to know how to articulate it yourself. Right? So you got to open up your mouth and, and share it. We, uh, in our Connect groups this past year, we've, we've trained you how to share your story. Three parts in three minutes. Remember that? Your personal testimony. How to share what your life was like before you met Jesus. Share how you met Jesus and share how your life has changed now that you've met Jesus. And we also trained you how to share his story, the gospel. We taught you a simple outline. God, man, Christ's response. We taught you how to walk through the Bible and and share the message that we've all been been separated from God because of our sin, but Jesus came because he loves us and died in our place and rose from the grave. And if we turn from our sin and place our faith in him, he will reconcile us to God and, and forgive us of everything. That's good news, right? We've taught you how to share that. So talk about the gospel. Share it with your spouse today and just refresh. Hey, can we share the good news? Share it with an unbeliever or someone that you believe needs to be saved. Share the good news. Talk about it. And as you talk about it, I promise you, you'll understand it better. There's just something that happens when your ears hear your mouth speaking truth. They help you kind of nail it down and make it more concrete in your life. Articulate the gospel. Here's a third thing, and it's so important. This is so vital. Never, ever... Never, ever, 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 never assume the gospel. So what do you mean by assuming the gospel? I mean, we come to a place in church life or our own walk with God and we say, I've heard that message again and again. It's time to move on to something else now. I understand all that. I got all that. So let's move on to three steps to do this or five steps to make this better in my life or let's talk about that kind of stuff. Let's get more practical and let's stop talking about that gospel stuff. We got that down, Wade. I mean, why the, why the need to go through Galatians and break it down and, and dig in? I mean, we know all that gospel stuff, right? It's an old, old story. We got it, Wade. You know what that is? That's assuming the gospel. Another way we assume the gospel is by saying, you know what? Our kids and grandkids, they've grown up here. They know it. Let's stop talking about it so much. Talk about some other things. You know what D.A. Carson writes? One generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel, stops talking about it. They think, well, everybody knows it. The following generation denies the gospel. And Carson's point is this. We're only one generation from losing the gospel in our churches. If we just assume our kids know it and don't talk about it and sing about it and preach about it and rejoice in it and share it, if we just assume it, we'll lose it. And our kids and grandkids will walk away from it saying, it must not be that that important because no one ever talks about it. We never want to be guilty of assuming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a message of primary importance. It should be front and center with everything that we say and do. Amen? The foundation that we build our lives and our church ministry upon. Never assume 
the gospel. Uh, the old hymn says, tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. We need to constantly rejoice in and share that story. Let me give you a fourth way that we can maintain faithfulness to the gospel. I coined this phrase. I've been excited to share it with you. It's, I mean, it's not an original thought, but the, the phrase is, I think, original. Embrace loving exclusivity. How can we maintain faithfulness to the gospel? Embrace loving exclusivity. So what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said there's only one way to be saved. All roads do not lead to God. Only one way to be saved is only through Jesus. Now listen to me. You've got to settle that in your own heart and life. Because you're going to be tested about this issue. In your classroom, in college campus, in the workplace, maybe family members. And you're going to be tested with pluralism that says, well, just choose some path because every path eventually gets you where you need to go. Which is completely antithetical to what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we've got to settle the exclusivity issue and say we believe there's only one way to be saved. That may not be popular, but we've got to believe it. But, but notice, we need to embrace loving exclusivity. In other words, we don't just hold on to exclusivity because it's our religious dogma and it makes us feel superior to people that don't believe it. We hold on to this doctrine because people need to hear it. The most loving thing we can do is say, Jesus saves, and only Jesus saves. Tom Schreiner writes this, and this is a great quote. It was worth you coming to church this morning. Tom Schreiner writes, We must have courage to proclaim that there is only one way to salvation, that one is saved not by living a good life, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. If we fail to proclaim that there is only one name by which we can be saved and that human beings come to God only through Jesus, we will doubtless give assurance of salvation to people who are heading for final judgment. Nothing can be more unloving than granting false assurance to the perishing. Wow. Let me me read that again. Nothing can be more unloving than granting false assurance to the perishing. So if you give in to the idea of religious pluralism, that all roads lead to God, you're not being loving and inclusive. You are despising folks by not sharing the truth with them. That there's only one way to be saved. If a doctor knows the right treatment and doesn't prescribe it, would you call that doctor loving? Of course not. We know there's only one way, one way to be saved, but we do not hold on to exclusivity in Christ. We're not being loving. We're not being inclusive. We are being hateful and not showing love to our fellow humans. So embrace loving exclusivity. Listen, I believe Jesus is the only way to be saved, but I'm not mad about it. I rejoice in it. It's not that this is what I believe in. No, I believe it and I share it because people need to hear it. 
right? You need to hear it. Embrace loving exclusivity, which leads to the last point about how we can maintain faithfulness to the gospel. Know the gospel, articulate the gospel, never assume the gospel, embrace loving exclusivity. And then last, treasure the gospel. Treasure the gospel. This means that the gospel of Jesus Christ should be a message that you rejoice in, that you treasure, that you hold dear. Because here's the deal, coming real close. When the gospel no longer excites you, you open yourself up for some new exciting message. And I think a lot of people are led astray from the truth because they're no longer excited about the gospel. The story of God's salvation in Christ found in the pages of Scripture. The message of primary importance. They're not excited about that. They're looking for some other you know, message that will give them warm fuzzies or chill bumps or some mystical experience. And because they don't treasure the gospel, they are easily led astray. Can I tell you this? You can keep your North Carolina barbecue, and you can keep your Kansas City barbecue, and you can keep your Texas barbecue. You know why? I've had Memphis barbecue. Can I get an amen? I'm telling you, it's the best, right? I'm not looking for any other barbecue. I've had barbecue in Memphis. It don't get any better than that. Bad grammar, true statement. (laughs) And because I'm so into Memphis barbecue, I'm not looking for other barbecue. Eat what you want to eat. I don't need it, right? When you treasure the gospel, you're not looking. You're not looking for other messages or other ideas or beliefs because you are so excited that Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven, took on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life as the God-man, went to the cross and took all of your sin upon himself and took the wrath of God that you and I deserve, dying in our place. And you are thrilled by the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. Early on Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. He's alive today. He's mighty to save. Listen, the gospel is the only message that changes people's lives. Paul said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. Tell me another message that saves. There's not one. So why would you treasure anything else other than the one message that saves about the one Savior who saves? Treasure the gospel. That's why it's so important we get together every week. Travis and the music team just point us to to Jesus and the, the, the glories of the good news. And we sing about it and we preach about it and we rejoice in it and, and We're uplifted and encouraged and strengthened. Listen to me. When I leave today, I'm not looking for any other message. I've been celebrating the gospel. Doesn't get any better than that. Amen? Doesn't get any better. Treasure the gospel. So here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Our aim should be to please God by our fervent fidelity to the gospel. Our aim should be to please God by our fervent fidelity to the gospel. Not being led astray by false teaching or false teachers, 
but clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is found in the pages of Scripture. And if we'll cling to the truth, God will be pleased by our lives, by our church.